We'll be opening this morning again to James chapter 5. And if you have a child third grade or under, uh, there's a teaching time for them, as most of you know already, in the room outside in the hallway, and you can take them there now. But we're looking once again at this text under the title, Pray to God Effectively. Pray to God Effectively. This is James' last significant topic in this letter, the topic of prayer. There's a lot of reasons to pray. We should thank God when we pray, express our gratitude to Him. We should pray to God just because we want to exalt Him and praise Him for His power and His wisdom and His goodness and His strength, the fact that He has uh, upheld us, especially through trials. But the kind of prayer that James is talking about here is primarily prayer in time of trouble. When things take place in our lives that remind us that we are very small and God is very big. In fact, our prayers in time of trouble are the confession of our weakness and the declaration of His power. That's why James begins in the text in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? That's weakness. He says, let him pray because God is the one who can address that weakness. And as I said last week, this is suffering that comes from living in a fallen world. The the word suffering is a compound word, actually, that means to suffer evil. Evil is in the world because of sin and the impact of sin. Sickness is in the world. Famine is in the world. Weakness is in the world. Injustice is in the world. Hatred is in the world, along with envy and pride and greed. In fact, believers in Christ in the New Testament are even promised persecution. That's not a promise that everyone claims when we go around claiming prayer promises, but it's there for us to claim. And all of this evil will take its toll on us one way or the other. Sooner or later, we are going to suffer. We are going to go through trials because we're living in a fallen world. And when that happens, James says, let him pray. Prayer is the believer's God-given response to suffering. As we saw last week from Psalm 13, prayer in time of trouble is laying out our complaint before God and crying out to God and wrestling with God and then resting in God and thanking God. So what does it mean to pray effectively? If I could just be blunt about it, it means our prayers get results. It means that God moves to act on our behalf when we pray. And isn't that what we want? I mean, really? I mean, why, why do we want to go through the motions of praying if we don't really want God to help us? Do we enjoy just, just going through these emotions, uh, emotions that we have and, and, and going through our, our prayer words just as a mere religious exercise? Or do we pray because we want God to change something about our situation? Or that we have the strength and courage that He will give to us? to be able to bear up under our situation. 
God wants to meet our need. In fact, he wants to meet our needs so that we can live out the power of the gospel. There are sometimes, there are challenges in our lives that, that and, and, and sometimes God puts them there on purpose that hinder our ability to live out our life for him like we want to. We're sort of shielded for a while, maybe sheltered because of, of sickness or, or marginalized because of some issue in our life. And we want God's help in that to be able to get back on track to live out our life for His glory. And God is going to change the trouble somehow so that it removes the hindrances in our way to serving Him. Or He is going to change us so that the power of Christ shines through us as a testimony of His grace. There are some trials we go through where we meet people and have opportunities to serve God in ways we never would have without that trial. We don't know what God is going to do, but He is going to act somehow when we pray. He did not tell us in Hebrews 4.16 to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need if he wasn't going to actually give us any help. That's why the central part of this whole text is found, I think, in the second half of verse 16 where it says the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. In other words, the righteous person's prayer is effective, very effective. It says it has great power. When James makes this statement, he's summarizing everything he said in the text up to that point about prayer, and he's anticipating what he's about to say by way of Elijah's example in verses 17 and 18. So, do things happen when you pray? Do things change? Is there really help? And the words in this text surrounding this central statement at the end of verse 16 teach us how to pray to God effectively. In fact, as I said last week, there are at least five ways James encourages us to pray if we are going to pray to God effectively. We looked at the first one last week. I'm going to look at just the second one this week, and I promise I'll get through the rest of them uh, when, we, when we come next week. We might have just two more times after this week in our study of James before we finally reach the end of the chapter. So what is the, this, this first one? I, I sum, summarize these as simply as I could. First of all, he wants us to pray personally. H- how is our prayer effective? Well, first of all, to make it effective, we need to personally pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Remember what James says in the previous chapter in verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You can be guaranteed of one thing. There will be zero effectiveness in the prayers that are never prayed. Nothing will happen as a result of the prayers that never form in our heart and find expression through our consciously bowing before our loving Creator who invites us to come. If we don't pray, we're not going to see any effect. And as we saw last week using Psalm 13 as a model, this kind of prayer in time of trouble is not just casually throwing up a request to heaven or mentioning a need in our our prayer group and, and praying about it for a few moments. Prayer in time of trouble is our way of engaging with God in a way that He designed, laying out our case before Him, making arguments, then relying on His wisdom with gratitude. And I'll tell you what, even if we didn't know that from Psalm 13 or other Psalms that we looked at last week, uh, even if we 
didn't really understand this principle from Scripture, if there's trouble enough in your life, you will pray more if you know God. If you're a child of His, God puts us in those situations where we will learn to pray. And when we do that, when we pray like that, in the words of Paul in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind through Christ Jesus. But James doesn't address only the suffering in verse 13. He also addresses those who are cheerful. Notice he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And you remember from last week that this is a cheerfulness that is a deep gladness. It's a rest. It's peace. It's trust, even in times of trial. Because the people to whom James is writing were going through trials. We get a hint of it throughout the letter. But remember back in verses 1 through 6 of this very chapter, uh, they're suffering at the hands of these wicked landowners. And really, the response for those who are cheerful is also to pray. Because praise is a form of prayer. In fact, one of the hymns we sang, I think it was the second one that we sang uh, today, Oh, for a heart to praise my God. That's a prayer to God, for a heart to praise Him. It's a perfect kind of song to sing in response to what James is saying here. In fact, the verb praise is solo. It literally means to sing psalms. And the psalms that these Jewish believers would be singing, especially from the book of Psalms, are prayers and praises to God. These people who are cheerful aren't disconnected from suffering. It's not like James is saying, you know, if, you, if you're going through suffering, do this. But if, if you're the kind of person going through cheer right now, do this. No, they, they're just on the, same, they're on the same continuum. They're just at different points of it. And you know what that's like living for the Lord. Sometimes we, are, uh, we have suffering emphasized in our life, and sometimes we have uh, the, the gladness of knowing that God is there for us emphasized in our life. So James says, in those kinds of circumstances, sing praise to God for that. It's another aspect of personal prayer. But this morning, I want to move one step further. And this is all about what makes our prayers effective. James says, starting in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? So he's going he's gonna to center on sickness, which was a common kind of suffering in Paul's day, uh, in, in, I shouldn't say Paul's day, in, in the first century, in the ancient world, uh, we have a lot of suffering and sickness today, but remember, their medicine was not as much uh, as it is today, and they had some really odd ideas about what it would take to make people healthy. Uh, what that did, though, was make them much more reliant on something outside of themselves to make them better. Sometimes we don't think about God's help when we're sick because we're like, well, we'll just go to the doctor. We'll just get this medicine that'll take care of it. We won't really, really even think to pray. We're too dependent on something out, uh, that, that, that we can do for ourselves. But in the ancient world, sickness was one of these things that really challenged them, who am I trusting in? And there are things like that in our lives today. It's just that sickness is not as common because we've conquered a lot of that through medicine. The Lord has allowed that. But he says, is anyone among you sick? He says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up from his sickbed. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another 
and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, if the first way that James urges us to pray effectively is to pray personally, we've got to personally pray. We've got to do it, first of all. Then the second way is to pray corporately. That is, pray together as members of the body of Christ. You know that this is one of the ways that our prayers become more effective, especially over time, as we pray together and encourage one another. Sometimes you've showed up for a prayer meeting on Wednesday night probably and thought, you know, I really haven't prayed much at all this week but it was really refreshing for you to pray with brothers and sisters in Christ, and it reminded you of your walk with Christ. We need to pray together as members of the body of Christ. We need to share prayer together. Come to the throne of God together. Intercede not only for one another, but with one another. Yes, prayer is a personal activity. Each of us has a responsibility to obey James' admonition and make prayer a vital part of our relationship with God. However, prayer is more than that. Prayer is designed to bring the people of God together corporately, confessing their weakness and God's power and calling on Him with shared wisdom and, and supporting one another when we pray. In fact, the church was officially born out of a prayer meeting. Before Jesus poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the disciples and the women that we meet in the Gospels and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and and Jesus' brothers, by the way, James is here in this prayer meeting. James is in the upper room as one of the brothers of Christ when the Holy Spirit is poured out. About 120 in all, this text says. Verse 14 says, They were with one accord... That means with one purpose, sharing the same mind, and notice they were devoting themselves to prayer. This was no casual prayer meeting. They were giving themselves fully to the purpose of prayer. And prayer became then something the church did together in earnest from its very beginning. So one of the activities of the early church was that they devoted themselves. There's the same expression to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And when they suffered together, as we see in Acts 4.31, they prayed together. It says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were encouraged because of coming together in their prayers. Search for the word prayer in Acts, and you'll see that believers are praying everywhere, all the time, in all kinds of circumstances. But they're often doing it together. In Acts chapter 12, after James the apostle uh, is killed by Herod, and so they arrest Peter, and they're going to bring him out the next day and execute him also. If that was happening to a member of Gateway, we would be having an all-night prayer meeting just like they are in this text. God miraculously delivers Peter through the prayers of the saints of God, sets him out on the street, and finally when Peter realizes he's been delivered, it's, it's really interesting to read the text. And, and I, I would be stunned too if an angel smacked me on the head and said, get up in the middle of the night and, and, and walk out of the cell. And he's in the street and the angel's gone. He's like, what happened? And when he finally realizes it, he goes where the church is gathered. And it's in the middle of the night, but they're having a prayer meeting. 
They're praying for him. In a time of great trouble, the church gathers to pray. Now, we could keep going, and you would see that gathering to pray was one of the key activities of the New Testament church. In fact, we are not truly a New Testament church if we do not gather to pray. So even in our worship service this morning, we've bowed several times already to pray together. This is an activity of a New Testament church. Don't take that for granted. Don't take it lightly. Engage in that prayer. We are doing this together. In fact, even the way James introduces personal prayer in verse 13 has a view of the whole church in mind. You know, James could have said, are you suffering? Then pray. There's a lot of addresses in the plural to people in the New Testament telling them to do this or that. But James doesn't say it that way. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Do you this morning know of anybody among us who is suffering? Do you know anyone who needs prayer? Are you aware of the needs of your brothers and sisters? Then he says, let him pray. It's a third person imperative. It not only calls upon the person who is suffering to pray, but really in the context, it calls upon the whole church to encourage a brother or a sister to pray because they're all being encouraged to do this together. Or in the second part of the verse, to praise. And he keeps up this call to the entire church throughout this whole section. This is one of the reasons the body gathering to pray is so important. It's the reason that prayer is a significant element in our worship services to begin with. It's the reason we take most weeks time uh, to, to pray like on a Wednesday night together. And I'm grateful for technology that allows us to connect as much as we are able And when there are those who cannot physically come to the church building regularly at a 7 o'clock Wednesday night time or even on a Sunday morning sometimes, but there's something about the body coming together and physically being with each other and touching one another and talking with one another that you cannot replace through any technology. It encourages us to pray more. It teaches us to pray. And it brings the hearts of God's people together. I think some of the best times of fellowship where there's, there's, not, not, there's no food, which is really strange for a Baptist, right? Uh, there's no coffee or anything. It's just on Wednesday night prayer meeting and we just break up into fellowship groups. There's talking and there's praying and there's more talking and I hear laughter and expre- uh, people expressing pressing concerns. And, and we, when, we, when we pray like this and become knowledgeable of each other like this, Uh, It is bringing our hearts together. It's never the same group. We break up in different groups all the time. Getting to know one another as believers in Christ. We're sharing our journey with one another in the closest way possible because together we are going before God's throne. But there are also two specific examples here that James uses. And, And the first he uses is in verses 14 and 15. It's a somewhat detailed admonition explaining prayer in the context of a very bad sickness. And the second example is in verse 16. It's a little less formal. But both of these examples are forms of corporate prayer. So let's look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So what's this 
all about? Well, first of all, let's understand that James is talking about someone with a physical sickness. There's a lot of discussion in the commentary literature about this particular passage. And the word asthene, which is sickness, is also used for weakness. And you've got confession of sins later. So some people say it's just weakness. Some people say it's sickness. Some people say it's spiritual weakness. There's a whole host of, of ideas that I'm not going to take time explaining to you. I'm just going to tell you what the correct version is of the, of the story uh, this morning. Um, the, the term can actually apply to any significant bodily weakness. Somebody suffering from severe mental or physical or emotional fatigue could be that. But unless there's something in the context to tell us that there's a specific illness or weakness in mind, we should just assume when we see this word that the person is going through some really bad sickness, some illness. And they had illness in their day, just like we have in our day. They had uh, some particular things that we would recognize like malaria and dysentery and fever and scurvy, you haven't heard that term probably in a while, infection. And whatever their ailment, it was debilitating enough, James says, let him call for the elders of the church. It was easier for the elders to go to the sick person in this case rather than have the sick come to them. And James says, let them pray over him and imagining him on on his sickbed gathering around him, praying over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So the elders are called to come, stand over the sick person, pray for him or her. And in connection with the prayers, either as they prayed or right before they prayed, one of the elders would place his thumb in olive oil and smear it on the forehead of the sick. Or perhaps he would take a little bit and pour it on the forehead or the head of the person who was sick. sick. Now, Why would the elders be asked to anoint with oil? Actually, we're not 100% certain, but it must be an act connected with the need for prayer that these Jewish believers already understood from their religious culture because James doesn't explain the oil. In fact, the oil, if you look at the text, it's, it's really a secondary action alongside of prayer. They might both be happening at the same time, but the main show is prayer. The oil is just secondary. And James doesn't explain it. Some say the oil was intended to be medicinal because oil was often used to heal in that day. It can still be medicinal today, of course. You might remember as the good Samaritan bandaged the man who was robbed in Jesus' parable, he treated the wounds with oil and wine. But it's unclear how oil could help with most sicknesses that James probably has in mind here. It's better if we think of the oil, I think, as a symbolic act, the meaning of which was obvious to these Jewish believers but largely lost on us today. And and that's not surprising because every culture has its symbols that might not be understood by another culture. If someone from another culture had never before seen a person in a courtroom place his left hand on a book and raise his right hand and say a bunch of words. Uh, He might wonder, what's the significance of that action? He would probably be able to discern from the context that it has something to do with his testimony in court. So where do we see the anointing in Old Testament Jewish culture? Well, the priests were anointed when they were dedicated to the Lord. Sometimes the oil was poured over the head. Sometimes it was merely sprinkled. But it was to symbolize that these priests were being marked by God for a special ministry. 
not only were the priests anointed, the tabernacle and its furniture were also anointed. There was a special oil mixed with uh, the special recipe of spices that they would use to sprinkle uh, the tabernacle furniture. And I think most of the anointing we see in the Old Testament, though, refers to the anointing of kings, setting them aside as God's chosen ones to lead Israel. And sometimes we see a special anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the anointed king by which God himself affirms the anointing by giving his Holy Spirit. In fact, it's very interesting to analyze the various times of anointing of kings in the Old Testament. I spent way too much time on this this week, but I sort of got fascinated with this, this whole subject. Saul was first anointed uh, the, the king of Israel. He was the first king. And, and the prophet Samuel poured oil on his head to signify that. And even though Saul turned from following God so that God raised up David in his place, a, a, a king after his own heart or after his own choosing, God said, David still showed Saul remarkable respect because, as David said, he's God's anointed one. Remember that? Like in the cave when he cut off the hem of Saul's robe because he could, because Saul was sleeping? He sort of had an aha moment there at Saul, and, but his heart smote him and he said, who am I to, to even do that to the Lord's anointed? But when Saul finally falls in battle against the Philistines, David writes this great lament for Saul that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 1, in which he says that Saul's shield, his instrument of protection against the enemy's weapons, his shield, has been defiled in his death and it is no longer anointed with oil, David says. And David seems to mean that when God's anointing was removed, so was his protection, shielding him from death. God chose that day when Saul died to remove Saul from being one specially chosen to lead Israel because God gave special protection to his anointed ones. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. That's his king, his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Of course, you know who the ultimate anointed one is from David's line, right? Jesus Christ. The, the Hebrew word anointed is the word Messiah. The Greek rendition of Messiah is Christos, or as we say, Christ. Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. And yes, God has a special plan in place and a special protection of his anointed one. He says in Psalm 20, verse 6, the Lord saves his anointed one, and David's referring to himself as king. The Lord is saving the, uh, the, the saving refuge of his anointed, Psalm 28, verse 8. And these are all in context, a reference to the anointed of, anointing of David as king. But then we have this familiar verse. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I, I think that David is referring here not to his kingly anointing, but to the fact that God marks out his own sheep as special to him. So with some of these ideas in mind, coming back to James 5, at the least, at the least, without, without saying fully this is exactly what the oil signified, at the least, it seems that the oil is a way for the elders to remind this person troubled by sickness that he or she is special to God. 
that God cares personally for this one. And that can be especially comforting in time of terrible sickness. The oil is a way of dedicating this infirmed believer to the Lord for special grace and healing. That's why he says, I think, that they anoint in the name of the Lord. That would have been how a Jew would have understand, would have understood the oil. I think in part, at least, that's how he would have understood it. And by the way, I have gathered with other pastors or elders in the home of very sick church members and anointed the head with olive oil in a time of special prayer. And those have been wonderful, close times that brought great comfort to the sick or dying as a reminder of God's special care. And we would do the same for you if you have a serious illness, if you ask for it. I mean, we'll even let you pick out the brand of oil that you want us to come. We'll use extra virgin olive oil or, or something like that. We'll make it really good. As long as you know there's nothing magical about this oil. It's a symbol, largely of which is, is lost on us because it's not in our culture anymore. But there's nothing wrong with doing this. In fact, if you look at verse 15, is it the oil that has any effect no, look what James says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. It's not the oil that saves. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Whether oil is present or not, it's the prayer that's effective. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Because God is responding to our sincere cry for help. Remember what James says back in chapter 1. He mentions prayer there. He says, let him ask in faith with no doubting, no double-mindedness. Remember? We'll talk about that a little, more, a little more next week. But he says in chapter 1, God is as sincere in his answer as we are sincere in praying. So let's continue to examine this idea of the elders gathering to pray as an example of corporate prayer. Okay, we, we understand the oil a little bit now, and that's always the big question in that text. But, but keep in mind, prayer is the big deal. Prayer is the center stage here. James says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Whose prayer? Well, I don't think James is very specific here because it includes the prayer of whomever is praying. The, the elders are praying. Probably the sick person is praying. Probably his family is there, and, and if they know the Lord, they're praying too, and the Lord responds to those sincere prayers. And it says the Lord will save him. And in context, although the word save is like our word save in English, it can mean a lot of different things depending on the context. In the context here, it means, first of all, he'll deliver him from his sickness. Because James says that the Lord will raise him up, raise him up off his sickbed, around which the elders are gathering to pray and anoint. And not only that, notice, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, we already know that because 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But why does James mention forgiveness for sin here? And the obvious answer is that sin and sickness are often associated. In the ancient world, in fact, they were very associated, much more readily than we associate it now. Paul tells the Corinthians who were sinning in the way they approached the Lord's table, this is the reason many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. We read that text every time we gather on the table. Not every sickness is related to personal sin. In fact, maybe most sickness, depending on the person, is not related to personal sin. 
But God does promise in His loving us that He will chasten us. And He may use sickness to accomplish that. So in calling the elders to the bed of a very sick church member, James says, if he has sins to confess that may he even have contributed to his illness, God will forgive in response to those prayers. And in context, they would be prayers of confession. Now, you and I both know that God does not just glibly take away every sickness that we have. There are ministers of the gospel who suffer illness even in the New Testament. Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, who almost died, he was so sick. And Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4, Paul had to leave him in Miletus because he was sick. And, and, and Paul, you know, who had been to Ephesus and, and so, so great miracles of healing were happening in Ephesus. This is where it says that in, in Acts 19 that they were carrying handkerchiefs to Paul and touching him and then taking the handkerchief to the sick person and the sick person was being well. And you turn around and Paul's leaving one of his co-workers at Miletus because he's sick. God does not heal every single person right away and sometimes not anytime because God is God and he's going to continue to teach us to trust him. Timothy was often sick. Paul mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 1 about Timothy having to be encouraged to take a little wine for his stomach's sake and for his oft infirmities, as it says in the King James. And Paul often himself was sick. He says so in Galatians 4. When he got to the churches of Galatia, he was experiencing sickness. And one day, God is going to call you home, either by returning for us or through an illness or just because you wear out. But the Lord brings us through those times of trials and he strengthens us in the midst of it. And yes, he often raises us up. In fact, we all remember times we've been sick and then we're not sick. And we just go on our way and forget about the fact that we were raised up. So often when we're healed from sickness today, it would have been just this miracle back in the ancient times that we actually got over that. People died from all kinds of things. Our life expectancy today is so much longer, but we get up, we just attribute it to modern medicine. We don't even think about the fact that God loves us and he's trying to show us things. He's trying to, he's trying to strengthen us. He wants to bring us closer to him. Any pressure in our lives, especially long-term illness, can have positive spiritual impact to bring us closer to God. So what you are seeing here, I think, in verses 14 and 15 is the value of corporate prayer. That is, prayer with more of the body involved, not just a single person, but here are the elders going to the home and gathering with the sick person, and we can assume with this household, and through this, there is encouragement and healing from God in the name of the highest anointed one. But this is not the only example of corporate prayer in the text. We also see it in verse 16. Notice what it says. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He says, therefore, because he's chaining this statement to what he has said about forgiveness of sins and sickness in verse 16. Only here, he is, this, this person is to confess to one another, that is to other members of the body of Christ, and to pray for one another for healing. So notice the shift in emphasis. In verses 14 and 15, there's a case when someone is so sick, he calls for the elders of the church to come and minister to him. And this is not something, obviously, that would happen every day or every week. 
But now James expands this prayer circle. He says, now everyone should be praying for one another. And because he says to confess to one another and pray for one another, this implies a sharing together in prayer with one another. This includes the elders praying with other church members, certainly, but it also includes members praying with other members. And though it's in the context of physical healing, I don't think we have to limit what he is saying here to physical healing alone. In fact, the word heal though it is most often applied to physical healing, is also used for emotional and spiritual healing in the Scripture. Jesus uses this word in Matthew 13, citing Isaiah 6, to speak of healing people's relationship with God. And again, Jesus uses it in Luke 4, citing Isaiah 61, where Jesus says that God has anointed him with the Spirit to heal the brokenhearted. And Hebrews 12, 13 uses the word heal metaphorically for someone who is lagging behind in the Christian race or has dropped off to the sidelines and needs encouragement to get back in the race and to keep running. So I think that we could, at least by way of application, say that we need to be praying for one another, not only for physical healing, but also for, for perseverance in running the race and staying faithful to God and for encouragement in times when the spirit is crushed and weighed down, and for warmness of affection toward God when it has slipped away. James says that healing comes through the effort of confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another. And, and yes, God is doing the healing. He's the only one who can heal. But he heals in response to the prayers of his people as they confess when they pray. We do not have because we do not ask. So next Lord's Day, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put an open mic down here in front of the platform. And one by one, we'll invite you to come up to the front of the sanctuary. And you can confess your, all of your sins to the church. And after one of you has confessed, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have prayer. And everybody can watch online and everybody can... Uh, you're taking this all too seriously, by the way, okay? You know I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, when I, say, I guess you shouldn't lie when you're preaching. And that's maybe what, what confuses people. Now, now I need to confess something here, right? <laughs> But no, that would be ridiculous. We can't just do that. Why not? It says, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another. You know why this would be a big mistake? Because we are a growing, changing congregation, and that means that not everyone in this audience has walked personally with you on your journey with Christ and knows you and loves you and knows that they, and you know that they would definitely pray for you and not judge you. That's, that's a relationship you form with somebody as you walk with them in the body of Christ. Confession involves divulging sins and sin struggles or temptations and weaknesses. And we don't go around sharing all of those deeper things with just anyone. In fact, if you find a person who easily confesses sins to everyone they meet, it's usually a sign they're hiding something far worse. <laughs> so really watch out for that person, okay? So if you're willing to have that level of a conversation it automatically assumes a relationship with the person to whom you are confessing. It assumes you have spent far more time with that person mutually encouraging one another, talking about the Lord, sharing life together. And you know that when you share things, it's not going anywhere. It's not going to be shared with a husband or a wife or any other close friends. This is something you're sharing just personally with that person. That's the context for confessing your sins 
to one another. So where do you find relationships like that? Well, I'll tell you, if nowhere else, you will find them in the partnerships you form in your discipleship, small groups, or one-on-one. When we officially launched this morning, this uh, uh, time, uh, these, these, these groups during our Sunday school time, which is the beginning of forming discipleship-making relationships, this is the natural place to share our deeper needs and to be diligent in prayer for those with whom we are sharing the journey. And it doesn't mean that there aren't things that we share with the whole body. Of course we can do that. But sometimes we, we want to know that there's that trust there and that this person really is walking with us on the journey. And that won't happen right away. Some of you may be met today in a discipleship group for the first time with these people, and hopefully it was a really good experience and you enjoyed sharing, but you probably didn't you know, all just divulge your deepest, darkest secret to one another this morning. I hope that didn't happen. You have to be assured that what is shared in the context of that discipleship meeting stays in that meeting. But it is a way that we can live out obediently what Jesus is saying here. But here's the thing, in one way or another, we have to obey what James is teaching because it's the Word of God. And if we have a church body, even one where everyone is happy and there seems to be a lot going on, but no one has any avenue, any opportunity to say, hey, I need help spiritually. I need to share this with somebody. We are not a New Testament church. At least we won't look like what James is talking about here unless we engage as a congregation like this. I don't know what that means for everyone here. Uh, I don't want to play the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in your life, but I want to encourage you to seek the Lord. Ask the Lord, what is the best way in your journey to live out personal prayer in your life every week? What time needs to be set aside? What organization of schedule needs to change for personal prayer to take place? And what has to take place for corporate prayer to take place? Maybe you need to get into the habit of being here for Wednesday night prayer meetings. I've really enjoyed seeing our prayer meetings grow. And I know that personally, for some of you, because you come and you remind me of this from time to time, uh, coming to the midweek prayer meeting is a near impossibility. I totally get that. Seven o'clock on a Wednesday evening in today's workaday world and other factors like distance and health make it a real challenge. So I'm not guilt-tripping anyone by bringing this up, but some of you perhaps could manage it better. And I'm just asking you to have a conversation with the Lord about that because it is an opportunity to do what James is talking about here. And to weigh the benefit of the closeness of your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ and the mutual encouragement that it means for one another as you meet together in prayer. Others of you, if you haven't been able to decide about pairing off or joining a small group to form uh, disciple-making relationships, let me encourage you just to make that a matter of prayer. Nobody's really pushing anybody into this. It's an opportunity. It's a cultural change that we're starting at the church. Even just praying that God will open the door for you to have a relationship like that with someone in the church body. 
The Bible doesn't tell us we have to meet on a Wednesday night at 7 o'clock for prayer meeting. I, I can't find the chapter and verse. I've been looking for it for years. Haven't found it at all. Uh, there's, a, there's a reference in the Didache that I'll share with you sometime that I found uh, that might, uh, you know, give us the platform for that. But, but I've not found it in, in the Holy Scripture. And the Bible doesn't even tell us that we have to form discipleship-making relationships using the organizational method that, that we're using right now. But the Bible does tell us that we need to share life together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And James says that we need to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. So that's a non-negotiable. I mean, don't look at me. This is what it says in the text. If we're going to obey God, walking together in Christ, it is a divinely predetermined decision that is out of our hands. We just have to say yes to God. But we have to say, God, what is it you want me to do to live this out? The only question is, are we going to obey God or not? At the least, that's what we ought to all be praying about with a willingness to follow the Lord. This is one of the ways that we learn to pray effectively, by doing it together. And this is one of the ways that James tells us we live up to our faith. Father, thank you for...